He was sitting under the algaroba trees between the lanai and the beach. His eyes wandered over the dancers, and he turned his head away and gazed seaward across the mellow-sounding surf to the southern cross burning low on the horizon. He was irritated by the bare shoulders and arms of the women. If he had a daughter, he would never permit it, never. But his hypothesis was the sheerest abstraction. The thought process had been accompanied by no inner vision of that daughter. He did not see a daughter with arms and shoulders. Instead, he smiled at the remote contingency of marriage. He was thirty-five, and having had no personal experience of love, he looked upon it not as mythical, but as bestial. Anybody could marry. The Japanese and Chinese coolies toiling on the sugar plantations and in the rice fields married. They invariably married at the first opportunity. It was because they were so low in the scale of life. There was nothing else for them to do. They were like the army men and women. But for him, there were other and higher things. He was different from them, from all of them. He was proud of how he happened to be. He had come of no petty love match. He had come of lofty conception of duty and of devotion to a cause. His father had not married for love. Love was a madness that had never perturbed Isaac Ford. When he answered the call to go to the heathen with the message of life, he had had no thought and no desire for marriage. In this they were alike, his father and he. But the board of missions was economical. With New England thrift it weighed and measured and decided that married missionaries were less expensive per capita and more efficacious. So the board commanded Isaac Ford to marry. Furthermore, it furnished him with a wife, another zealous soul with no thought of marriage, intent only on doing the Lord's work among the heathen. They saw each other for the first time in Boston. The board brought them together, arranged everything, and by the end of the week they were married and started on the long voyage around the horn. Percival Ford was proud that he had come of such a union. He had been born high, and he thought of himself as a spiritual aristocrat. And he was proud of his father. It was a passion with him. The erect, austere figure of Isaac Ford had burned itself upon his pride. On his desk was a miniature of that soldier of the Lord. In his bedroom hung the portrait of Isaac Ford, painted at the time when he had served under the monarchy as prime minister. Not that Isaac Ford had coveted place and worldly wealth, but that, as prime minister and later as banker, he had been of greater service to the missionary cause. The German crowd and the English crowd and all the rest of the trading crowd had sneered at Isaac Ford as a commercial soul-saver. But he, his son, knew better. When the natives abruptly emerging from their feudal system with no conception of the nature and significance of property and land were letting their broad acres slip through their fingers, it was Isaac Ford who had stepped in between the trading crowd and its prey and taken possession of fat, vast holdings. 
Small wonder the trading crowd did not like his memory. But he had never looked upon his enormous wealth as his own. He had considered himself God's steward. Out of the revenues he had built schools and hospitals and churches. Nor was it his fault that sugar, after the slump, had paid forty percent, that the bank he founded had prospered into a railroad, and that, among other things, fifty thousand acres of Oahu pasture land, which he had bought for a dollar an acre, grew eight tons of sugar to the acre every eighteen months. No, in all truth, Isaac Ford was an heroic figure, fit, so Percival Ford thought privately, to stand beside the statue of Kamehameha I in front of the Judiciary Building. Isaac Ford was gone, but he, his son, carried on the good work at least as his...